0: Hi everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home In My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today's episode is part of a multi-part series titled Perspectives on Death that examines my experiences with death, both as a religious person and later in my secular life. I'll be explaining the ways in which death has impacted me and perhaps touch on some responses and reactions that may resonate or offer alternatives to the experiences others may have had. This series mirrors articles from the At Home in My Head blog. A link to the blog series is also included in the description. And now for the next episode of Perspectives on Death, Maggie. If not for her silver hair it would have been hard to guess maggie's age if there was a wrinkle on her cheerful face i never noticed it despite appearances though maggie was an elderly woman we attended the same church when i was in high school a conservative fundamentalist sect known as the church of christ we took the bible literally including biblical concepts of afterlife a literal heaven described as being with god and a literal hell described as being separated from God. There was nothing not to love about Maggie. In addition to being a beautiful person outside, inwardly, she was positive, supportive, loving, always looking for the good in everyone around her. I don't recall her ever engaging in gossip. No unkind word ever left her mouth. I never saw her angry, judgmental, condescending, or intolerant. To this day, she remains one of the most kind-hearted people I've ever met. She couldn't have been more dissimilar than her husband Paul, a large, gruff man with a personality like 180-grit sandpaper. Around Maggie, though, he softened like butter in the sun. She knew just how to use her subtle magic to draw Paul's better self to the surface. Whenever one of his unforgiving comments was met with one of her what-a-harsh-thing-to-say glances, this powerful mountain of a man would sheepishly tone it down and retract it on the spot. I never asked how they met, let alone how they married, but I often wondered. I do know they married late in life, a good while after the death of Paul's first wife, somewhere in his distant past. He wasn't the type to talk about his feelings, but it couldn't have been easy for him to hear that Maggie had been diagnosed with cancer. Back then, there really wasn't much that could be done for cancer. And because of that, people didn't talk about it. As a society, we didn't talk openly about a lot of important things, and that was too bad. Someone with cancer, someone like Maggie, wouldn't have been encouraged to share much. And folks around someone with cancer weren't encouraged to probe too deeply. Cancer was a black cloud that hung overhead like an executioner's blade about to come down. Most of us knew someone who had died from it. None of us knew someone who'd survived. Oh, we knew people who were deemed cancer free, but that was a temporary condition that existed in a brief time before it would come raging back to finish what it started. I didn't know the specifics of Maggie's treatment, but I recall she was having radiation therapy. She wasn't the sort to complain, but now and then she'd talk about how sick she felt. Still, she showed up for church services regularly. I remember one day she showed up with what looked like magic marker lines all over her face. It was part of her therapy. I was told it helped the radiologist know how to target the affected areas during subsequent visits. It was easy to see it made Maggie self-conscious and embarrassed. When you engaged her in conversation, she often raised a hand to her jaw and cheek, sometimes in pain, sure, but other times because of her discomfort and hyper-awareness of her appearance. Since she couldn't wash any of it off, she simply bore the entire experience with whatever poise she could muster. After a while, feeling sick and sad about how she looked, she started missing more and more services. Paul still came. He'd enter by himself and walk down the center aisle toward the front pew and sit alone in their regular spot. After services, he'd stay and talk, but whenever anyone spoke to him now, it was always the same conversation. How's Maggie doing? He'd report whether she was having good days or bad, explain how the doctors were doing their best, and offer, as best as a layman could, news about what all of these treatments were supposed to accomplish. After a while, the frequency of Maggie's attendance began to wane until she'd gone missing several weeks in a row. Things were getting worse. My mother arranged to visit Maggie and Paul in their home and asked if I wanted to come along. She told me Maggie had asked about me specifically, but I'd have gone regardless. I missed Maggie, and I wanted to see her again. I remember the house was dark and quiet when we arrived. My mother and Paul seemed to carry the conversation in the kitchen. Maggie didn't have much to say, but after a while, she touched my arm and invited me into an adjacent room to talk privately. It was a cozy sitting room, and I sat in a large soft chair. Maggie positioned herself opposite me on a brown leather loveseat as she pulled a pastel crochet shawl around her, as though she were chilled. Through the doorway on my left, I could still hear my mother and Paul in the next room. Maggie leaned over and reached for my hands. She sandwiched them between her own and looked at me with determination and distress as she started to speak. I was completely unprepared for what she was about to divulge. In desperate and fearful tones, she asked me, Oh, Tracy, what if I haven't been good enough? It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that she was terrified her life would not sit right with God. She was scared of God's judgment, that she would be deemed unacceptable, rejected, and cast into hell for all eternity. It was hard to process her words coming from one of the better people I'd ever had the privilege to have known. I remember my then-believing self trying to reassure her that Jesus had died for us to grant us access to heaven in spite of our sins. I reminded her that our sinful lives weren't what mattered since we were all of us sinners. What mattered was that we'd done our best to live according to God's will and do the right things in life according to Scripture. Jesus did that for us because he loves us and wants us to be with him in heaven. Jesus wasn't looking for ways to reject us, He was only looking for our acceptance of his offer of reconciliation. I explained to her that Jesus was our advocate, that he knew we were going to fall short, even doing our level best. That was the whole point of his death and resurrection, not to make us perfect by ourselves, but through forgiveness of our faults. I had no fear of death as a Christian. I had a lot of fear of death before I became a Christian because I was constantly being told I was going to hell until I believed and accepted Jesus. As an aside, after losing my Christian faith, I retained my fearless attitude toward death for oddly similar reasons. People love to throw down Pascal, and they ask, what if you're wrong? My thinking on that goes something like this. If I'm wrong, I'm still doing the best I can with what resources I have. If I don't hit the required metrics, there's nothing more I can do. As a Christian, It seemed that if Jesus was loving and fair-minded, he'd make a fair call and realize I'd done all I could, and I would earn mercy even if I did some things incorrectly. As a non-theist, it seems that if a loving God is fair-minded, that God will do likewise. If the best conclusion I can come to based on the information at hand is unbelief, and I'm sincere in that unbelief, then the decision would be in God's hands at that point. If it turns out to be a God that's going to condemn me for coming to the best conclusions I can based on the information I have to work with, then I'm screwed. But there's nothing I can do about it, so I might as well enjoy my life before whatever punishments await. I can't do better than my best, so there's nothing for it. But something that never left me about the situation with Maggie was how someone as sincere and kind as she was could be tormented in her final days by fears of hell. The religion that was supposed to comfort her in her darkest days was making her situation much worse. What was the point of all those hymns, those Sunday gatherings, those communions, that baptism, those Bible studies? Weren't they supposed to reassure us of our salvation? I thought the point was that we were lost and now found. I thought the altar call was about saving us from our fears and insecurities. If being saved was no assurance of salvation, then it left us no better off than before we joined the church. I can't speak to Maggie's beliefs, but I know they weren't the same as mine. Her fear demonstrated that. I don't recall seeing Maggie again before she was hospitalized. I felt bad for a while that I waited to go and see her there. Because by the time I was able to go, she was no longer conscious. She never regained consciousness again before she died. Even while she was sick, she was still beautiful. But in the hospital, the person lying in the bed intubated? That person looked nothing like Maggie. Maggie was gone, and I couldn't see any point to her continued existence in that indecent state. I just looked at her, sorry that I'd waited, and then left with my mother. I remember walking down the hospital hallway and saying to my mom, God won't keep her like that long. For some reason, God decided to keep her in that undignified limbo for a couple more days until she officially died. Decades later, as a non-believer, and especially after becoming an atheist activist for a time... I remember so many people insisting it was wrong to destroy a person's faith. Didn't I realize some folks need that faith to feel safe and secure? Every time I heard that, I thought of Maggie. I thought of the desperation in her eyes as she sat with me in a dark room, counting down as her life ticked away. Would she have been comforted if someone like my future self had been able to relieve her of her belief in hell? I think so. The conversations I've had with people have shown me that any state can be a comfort and any state can be a torment. It depends on a person's perspective. I've met people who are terrified of an afterlife, of some sort of eternal hell. I've met people who are comforted by an afterlife with the hope of eternal heaven. I've met people who are terrified of an end to their own existence. And I've met people who are comforted at the thought of a return to dust. They see it as a form of integration with the non-conscious aspect of the universe. Ultimately, I experienced fear of potential hell as a non-believer prior to my conversion. So I was fearful as a non-believer, but my fear stemmed from religious threats and offerings. As a Christian, I don't recall ever being fearful of death. And finally, as an apostate non-theist, I don't recall fearing death since my deconversion. I'm not saying I'm eager to die, and I'm not saying I don't appreciate my life, but I don't think about the end of my existence with existential dread. The idea of a time without me doesn't make me anxious. In my brief stint on this planet, I've seen so many things that come and go while the world just keeps on spinning. I imagine that it's going to be the same once I pass. It may impact some people when I go, but in the end, they'll get back to life and the world will go on. I'll be forgotten like so many things before. And tautological as it is, it'll be what it'll be. As for Maggie, though, as she faced her death, one of the most solid, decent people I've known crumbled under the terror of beliefs that were supposed to comfort her. At the end of her life, as she struggled to come to terms with the loss of everything and everyone she loved, she wasn't comforted. She was tormented by her religious beliefs. At a time when an additional distress is what no human being needs, it's exactly what her conservative Christian beliefs dumped on her life an angry, judgmental, vengeful God, just like the one described in so many Bible passages. What I'm always going to remember about Maggie is her generosity of spirit, her abundant kindness, but a close second will always be seeing such a generous, kind person riddled with terror during her final days.